It's the summer, and as it's the summer, we're working through a thematic series that we are calling Rhythms. And we chose that name because we really like that logo up there. No, we, Rhythms. What do we mean by Rhythms? We're talking about how we order our lives, how we work, how we rest, how we worship, how we have fun, and how we recreate and engage in church life and, and ministry. We know those are all really good things that God has created and given to us. We've been asking, how do we, how do we run after those things in a way that honors God and blesses our own souls, blesses each other? You know, I've always found that the summer season is a good time to evaluate and to assess things personally. In the summer, it's a great opportunity to, to, to look at where, what's going on maritally, what's going on in the family, what's going on in ministry, what's going on personally, and to make needed tweaks and adjustment heading into the new ministry year. And folks, we would love for you, as your pastors and elders, to do that same thing this summer season related to the rhythms of our lives. How does God want you to order your rhythms in a way that will, will bless your soul, that will bless your family, that will bless other people? And that's, that's what we've been running after. So the first week we talked about this idea that because God is a builder, remember he, he made the world, he created the garden, um, work, we, we talked about how work is a good thing, and because God has made us in his image, work for us is a good thing. And there can be a variety of callings, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or an accountant or a doctor, a lawyer, a student, that, that whatever God has called you to do, that, that, that's a holy thing. It is a, it is a good thing. It's a thing to be embraced and, and to find joy in. But as Pastor Josh reminded us last week, and Pastor Josh was so mean to remind us that Sin has like gotten involved. Thanks, Josh. That was a really that was a bummer. Okay, no sin has twisted these things, right? Um, we, you know, sin has. Let's just be honest. Work can kind of stink. Work can kind of be hard. Work is difficult. Work is taxing. Okay, literally, right? <laughs> Work is taxing, and 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 we we struggle with what we do. We're not oftentimes not happy with what we are doing. If I was to take a a poll in here. My guess is many, many, many of you might be discontent with what you're currently doing or, or where God has you at this point in your life. You know, in 1987, they did a survey, and a clear majority of Americans said, I actually enjoy what I do for a living. I enjoy my work. They took the same poll two years ago, last year, or 2014, and a majority, it's actually flip-flop now, a majority of people in America this probably shouldn't surprise us, say, I, I'm not satisfied with my work at all. In fact, it's this, this attitude toward work has, is seemingly pervasive. So just a couple of interesting statistics. Realize that, that of people of working age, 37% of people of working age in this country do not have a job. Okay? That, is, that is 93 million people. And then when you take out college students, because we don't really know what you're doing, but take out college students and take out those who, who have retired, and you just take those between 25 and 64, so it's to be kind of the prime working years, right? Still upwards of 40 million people, okay, not working. 
35% of all men, where are you men, between ages of 18 and 35 still live where? Home. Mm, okay, still live at home. It's interesting about, you know, just, you, you, can, you can see this attitude toward work, just kind of where, just, just start to be on the lookout for it. So Susan's dozing off to sleep last night. I'm watching, of course, HGTV, and there's the tiny house show, okay? And these people have lost their minds, by the way. I do not know what they're thinking. And, and this is seriously the motto, okay? These, this is what people say. I, I, I quote verbatim, we want to work less so that we can live more, Okay? How cute. Okay, that's awesome, and probably have you pay for it, right? No, we want to work less and live more. It's like, you just look around, like, there is just a dis-ease. That's where the word comes from, disease. Dis-ease, a discontentment when it comes oftentimes to where we find ourselves and what we're doing and where we're sort of stationed. And so we're really just asking a very basic question this morning, Four Oaks. How do we reclaim work? How do... How do we sort of restore work and our attitudes toward it it, to its proper place in our lives? How do you and I redeem work? So Colossians 3, just have two verses for you. We're going to read these and then, then unpack these. Paul makes it very clear. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Lord, so simple, so straightforward. we tempting to try to make it something that it's not, but it, it really is that simple. Lord, we want to work for you. We want to do what we do for you. We want to honor you. We want to work in awe of you. But Lord, although it's simple to understand, Lord, we just, as your people say, this is so hard to do. A lot of of good saints here this morning are tired, exhausted, worn out, abused, manipulated, mistreated, ignored, maligned even, as part of their work. And so, Lord, we're praying for them, for all of us, you would restore work to its proper place in our hearts and minds as a reflection of our relationship with you. So we pray that you would do it in these next few minutes together. In Jesus' name, amen. Two questions we want to ask and answer. Very straightforward, and here they are. How are you and I to think about what it is that we do? How are we to think about it? That's where we want to start, okay? And then secondly... How are you and I to go about doing that thing that we're doing? So how are we to think about where we currently are today, whether we're happy, sad, glad, joyful, discontent, in between, whatever, and then how are we to, how are we to go about doing it? So that's where we are. So first question, how are we to think about what we're doing? You know, Susan and I had to consider this when we were graduating from, from college. We met in a campus ministry, University of Tennessee, and we, we were, as we were wrestling through this, God, what, what is it that you want us to do? Where, where do you want us to spend this next season of our life? We were told very explicitly that if we wanted to have a real ministry, if we wanted to make a real impact for the kingdom, then we ought not to go into the secular workforce. 
we needed to go into full-time ministry. We need to go on full-time ministry, preferably with this campus ministry. So we want to raise support, they said. We're going to assign you to a place. You're going to be on the front lines of the kingdom. And sort of the key word is your potential to make an impact in God's kingdom is much greater by doing this than by doing kind of that other mundane, boring sort of stuff out there in the real world. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit, but just initially, there, that sort of thinking is, is misguided on a couple of fronts, okay, and, and just in no particular order. First of all, do we realize somebody has to actually work and make money to support the people who do that, right? Okay, that's kind of an important thing. So if we all consider going on campus ministry staff at the same time, None of us will go on campus ministry staff, right? Okay, so so number one. Number two, it ignores the fact that scripturally, whether we're talking about Abraham or Peter or the disciples or Paul or Jesus, these are all guys that had regular jobs. To use a James McDonald term, these guys were Joe Screwdriver, right? They were herdsmen, they were fishermen, they were tax collectors. Jesus, in fact, was a carpenter. Did he waste his first 30 years of his life because he didn't go into full-time ministry? All right, so that's so 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 scripturally that doesn't seem to really hold water in terms of example. But I think more fundamentally, at a deep theological level, we have to understand that there are when it comes to work and calling for folks, please hear this, there are no special class of Christians. Okay? There, there's callings, absolutely. But all of us, in whatever station of life we find ourselves, we, that's an aspect of our calling. Part of my calling is as a pastor with requisite qualifications and gifts, but that's not any fundamentally different in terms of status before God, spiritual significance, than what you are called to do in the context of your life. So 1 Peter 2.9, I don't know if we have it here, but, but 1 Peter 2.9 reminds us of this, Four Oaks you're a chosen race. Four Oaks, you're a royal what? Priesthood. Which means that there's not a special class of priests now who have a holy higher calling than all the other masses. That everything that we do okay, is, is honoring and glorifying to God. In fact, this is what Paul says when he says, go back to the text, whatever you do. Well, I don't know. That's, I was educated in the public school, okay? That's kind of broad. Whatever, okay? Unless, hey, listen, unless you're a hit man, okay, or unless you're a con man like Robert Redford and the Sting running cons on the south side, okay, whatever you do is part of God's holy calling for you. Now, understand the context. Paul is writing to whom? Slaves. And in this letter, Colossians was a companion piece to the letter to Philemon about Onesimus, who was a slave, runaway slave. And, and if you want to access all the things that we talked about in regards to slavery and indentured servanthood and how it was different and all that sort of stuff from what, what we typically know, go back and listen to the sermons online. We know that Paul lays the biblical groundwork for undermining the institution of slavery in that letter. He talks about how Philemon, uh, Onesimus, is a brother in Christ, and he has equal standing before God. But no matter how compelling Paul at that time could have said, we need to work for the abolition of slavery, guess what? It would not 
have changed the fact that on Monday morning, the slave in Colossae would have had to what? Be a slave. To be a slave. See, if there was anyone, if there's anyone who could be understood to be discontent with their job, discontent with their calling, to be, to be sort of captured by a feeling of hopelessness about what they're having to face the next day, would it not be a slave? Well, how much more so, Christian, in whatever God has called you to do? And you may feel like you are stuck behind a desk, or your boss is not making the most of your talents. And you may wonder, as a, as a mom, um, what you could be accomplishing out there. Or moms who are working, you're wondering what you could be accomplishing in here. Um, you may think, I, you know, here's a common refrain, I'm doing something that I never thought I would be doing. I, I'm, I'm, I got a degree in something I'm not using. What I'm doing now has no, has no relationship to my training. Or I should be doing so much more in my career. Now, this is not an apologetic, by the way, for moving from jobs to jobs or improving your lot or providing for your family. That, that's not what this is about. But I think Paul, for Oaks, would have us start with a more fundamental question. Don't, don't start there. Don't start there. Don't start by thinking about the job that you want. Start by thinking about the calling that you have. Right now, today, for most of you, what you're doing right now and what you will be doing tomorrow morning is not going to change, okay? Unless you do something really dumb, okay? So don't do something dumb. Paul reminds us, whatever you do, whatever you do, because I, I think we can all identify and wrestle with together at different points in, in, in our lives. Is, is what I'm doing significant? Is what, I, is what I'm doing meaningful? Is it really bearing fruit? Um, is, it, is, it, is it making a difference at all? Because I, I sure don't feel like it behind the keyboard. I sure don't feel like it when I'm out trying to sell this or that product. I, it sure doesn't feel like that when I'm having to change diapers. It sure doesn't feel like that when I am passed over and over and over for promotions. I'm not sure how that situates itself in your life. Here's a great quote from, from a, a man, pastor named Zach Eswine, and he's talking about George Mallory, who was the first to, to really endeavor to scale Mount Everest. And this is a little longer quote, but I think it's meaningful as we think about this idea of significance. He says, when, when George... Mallory was once asked why he wanted to climb Mount Everest. He famously answered what? Because it is there. Okay. Why do you, honey, want to go to that college football game? Because it's there. Okay. Don't, don't, don't try that. Okay. But in a personal letter to George's wife, Ruth, he revealed even more about what drove him to climb the mountain. Dearest, he wrote, you know that the spur to do my best is you and you again. I want more than anything to prove worthy of you. 
George left a meaningful legacy that proved worthy of history's remembrance. They only found his body about five years ago. He scaled Mount Everest in what year? 1924. But George's son, John, wrote something that has challenged me. Proud of his father, but sad too, John wrote, I would so much rather have known my father than to have grown up in the shadow of a legend, a hero, as some people perceive him to be. See, the answers George gave concerning his motives have confronted my own. Now, Forks, sift your own heart with this. The mountain was there. There was a mountain. And guys, what is the mountain in your life? What is that job, that promotion, that calling, that family, that marriage, that retirement, whatever? The mountain was there, but so was John, George's son. The mountain brought a sense of joy and gave a sense of the human struggle upward for life itself. But George's knowing his son would have brought him joy and a sense of striving for the purpose of life too. Climbing the mountain enabled George to prove worthy of his family. Now listen to this. But so would have loving and providing for his family in the ordinary routines of a long life day upon day. So why did George choose to engage the challenges of the mountain, but not the living room? Folks, what's the living room for you? Where has God called you today? And you may not like it. Remember, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said to slaves, he said, if you can secure your freedom, go for it. He did say that. But, but, but for most of us, that's not today. See, I think for so much of us, we have to be reminded that what we are doing right now in God's economy, whether we know it or not, really, truly does matter. In Memphis, uh, one of our pastors, a man named John Sartell, told the story that he was out fishing with his dad, and his dad was was getting to an elderly age. And John Sartell kind of got reflective, and he said, Dad... He said, I'm just so, I'm so sad. I'm so worried. Who is going to pray for me when you're gone? Okay, who's going to pray for me when, I'm, when you're gone? And his dad kind of chuckled and said, John, have I not taught you any better than that? See, the, the, the prayers that I've prayed for you in this life don't just have an echo for the next day or the month or the year or even the decade or even the century, but actually for all eternity. That, that it says in Revelation, which we're studying on Sunday nights, which this is so cool, it says that God, Jesus, collects all the, the prayers of the saints from all time, and he has them in a metaphorical bowl. And then when it's time to accomplish his purposes, he just sort of dumps those prayers out to have them return to him with the fruit and the design that he has for them. Folks, I think that in a lot of ways, you and I need to adapt that perspective related to our work. We have no idea how God is using what seems to you to be so menial, menial, so insignificant, so pointless, so fruitless, so limiting to bear fruit for eternity. It doesn't matter what you're doing 
whether you're a nurse, the best by associate, and that sounds cool, by the way, okay? The barista, the secretary, the accountant, the mom, shall I say the part-time eBayer, right? All important, okay? God has put you there. What does Paul say? Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Don't think first about what you could be doing, although that has its proper place. Think about what God has called you to do right now. It matters. It's important. The second question, then we'll be done. That's all well and fine, Paul, Pastor Paul. How are we to go about doing that? Let's go back to the text. Paul says this. He says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Okay, there we go. Whatever you do, work heartily. And you got to love that word heartily with all of your depth of being, with all of your soul, with everything that you have. Hey, when I think about heartily, I think about eating. Of course I do. Okay. So it was a tradition among our college group. When one of us would get married, we'd make the three-hour journey from West Tennessee up to a little town in Missouri called Sykeston, Missouri. And we would eat at a restaurant called Lambert's, okay? And Lambert's was known as the home of the throwed rolls, okay? And when I say they threw the rolls, I don't mean they tossed the rolls, okay? I don't mean they lobbed the rolls. I mean they hurled the rolls, and they were about this big, okay? And our goal was very simple, to catch as many of those as we could and to eat them all, okay, which we did. And then we would parade, and of course they brought the, the, anytime they have to bring the buffet to your table, that's when you know you're about to eat a lot of food. So you didn't get up to eat the buffet, they brought the buffet to your table, we're eating these rolls. Our goal was simple, to eat heartily. That was it, okay? This was not about encouragement, this was not about praying, this was not about sending, this was about eating as much food as humanly possible, and our motto was come strong or don't come at all. Like, if you're not coming into the arena to eat, okay, just stay home, okay, and watch Jeff Foxworthy or whatever, but anyway, we, we, we're, we're all in. That, in a sense, okay, when Paul says to work heartily, He's saying, put yourself into it. Okay, put your very soul into it. And, and when you think about that and how you might be working now, or how you moms, you might be laboring at home, or, or dads in the workforce, or moms in the workforce, or students, okay? Or maybe you're a retiree. We're going to talk about retirement at the end of this series. Am I doing it, okay, with God in view. And this tells us something very, very, very important, okay? Working heartily as for the Lord has nothing to do with what kind of job your boss thinks that you're doing. Okay, that has nothing to do with it. Your boss may think you are doing a terrible job. And I'm sorry about that, okay? But you can still be working heartily for the Lord. Your boss could think you are doing an incredible job and you may not be honoring the Lord at all. 1986, one of my very first jobs at Camp Vesper Point. Me and a couple of other high school guys who knew nothing about work were, were, we were, were on the work crew and we were told there was a there was a there was a place in the campground 
where all the, the debris was thrown from like construction and projects, and it wasn't garbage, but it was debris. And this pile of debris that had accumulated over the summer was massive. It was huge. And I don't know for a joke or what, but the, the camp director told us to move the debris from here to here, okay? I felt like Cool Hand Luke digging a hole and then filling it back in. And anyway, but he, they had a reason, so we had to move this stuff. And, one, and, and we were to do this with, with sort of our hands, wheelbarrows and that kind of stuff. And so one of, the, one, of our, one of our crew had the very bright idea. He happened to know a guy down the road who had a backhoe, okay? I love that man with the backhoe. Anyway, so, so he gets this guy over there, and he moves all this stuff in about 20 minutes. And we're just chilling there. And every time the camp director drove by on his motorcycle, we'd act like we were doing something. And at the end of that, he said, that is an excellent job. <laughs> you guys did. And maybe I should tell, maybe he's listening to this right now. Sorry, John. Okay, anyway, we, we did not do a great job, okay, because we weren't working for the Lord. Look how Paul says this in Colossians 3.22, right before, right before this passage. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Folks, our problem that summer was not work ethic, although we were totally lazy, okay? Um, our, our problem was not competency, although we were total nincompoops, okay? Our problem is that we were working by way of eye service. We were working as people pleasers. We were not working in fear of the Lord. We didn't have a work problem. We had a worship problem. Did you get that? A lot of us, most of us, when it comes right down to it, we don't have work issues. We've got God issues. We've got worship issues. Because we're going to work in fear of someone or in awe of someone, A-W-E. We might work in awe of our boss or awe of our coworkers or awe of our family. Fundamentally, those all lead to the same place. We're working for something more primary than the honoring and worship of the living God who's given us this task to, to complete. We didn't have a work problem, had a worship problem. How about you? How about you? When it comes right down to it and you think about your station of life and, and maybe you're discontent, maybe your gifts are not being utilized, and maybe God will lead you out of the place that you're in, but it's not today, is it? It's not today. Paul says, for you, for me, but with sincerity of heart, and we need his grace for this, fearing the Lord, work. Now, let's be honest, and I want to kind of do a couple of application points here. It can be very hard sometimes to discern where those lines are. They can get blurred very easily. And here's a couple of categories for us to think about as we try to apply this in our own context. Okay, here's first application point is this. Working for God is not necessarily the same as working for the American dream. Working for God is not necessarily 
the same as working for the American dream. Every person in this room, myself included, all of us have a mental picture of, of what it means to have the good life. Okay? So, 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 so think about what that is for you. What is the good life? The, the, the people buying the, town, the tiny houses had a vision for the good life. It's not a vision that resonates with my own life, okay? But it's a, it's a vision, okay? What is yours? And oftentimes, particularly for baby boomers or generation Xers, we think about the American dream as, as houses and vacations and cars and education. And by the way, all of those things are good things. They're all created by God to be enjoyed and to bless us in our life. But when they become fundamentally what drives our work, when, they, when, when it becomes foundationally what we are consumed and driven by, we're not working for God. We're working for man. And, and, and let me say one reason why I say this. Think about yourself as the slave in Colossae. There was no American dream for that guy. There was no American dream for that woman because Paul says that's not the goal. It might be a byproduct, a good byproduct. All all things made by God, graciously by him, to be enjoyed. But when they become the driver, the consumer, the, 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 the primary motivator, Guys, the American dream will always let us down. It will always let us down. Some bill, some circumstance, some illness, some loss of job. And the reason it will let us down is because God did not design the American dream to, to, to undergird and be the foundation for what we are called to do in our stations of life. It cannot undergird your work. It cannot bear that kind of freight. We're asking something that will ultimately let us down to give us hope. Paul says, that's not your hope. Your hope's in the living God. A second application point, okay, and I want to kind of speak more to kind of younger generational ethics here. Working for God is not the same as working to change the world. Working for God is not necessarily the same for working to change the world. See, a lot of millennials have, see, the pendulum has kind of swung. And they've seen a lot of the discontent and the emptiness of of failed dreams and the self-absorbed American dream. And you may have heard people say this, I want to do something of significance. I want to make my life count. And guys, that that is actually a noble biblical idea. But if you, if, you, if you go online and you do a search of all the articles, all the books, um, all, of the, all the things that were written about changing the world, okay, the vast majority of those things were all written in the last 10 to 20 years. Isn't that interesting? How many before 1900? Zero. Okay. This, see, this is, this is a new category for us. And you might have heard it on, on the radio. The, they come in these public service announcements, and you might have heard it. And the guy comes on, and he says, what do I want to be? Okay, so in other words, that's, that's kind of our question. What, what do I want to do? God, what do you want me to do? He says, what do you want to be? And then he says, first I had to decide what? What I wanted to make. 
He said, I wanted to make more, so I became a teacher. And so part of the whole spoof of the, of, the, of the commercial was to say, you know what? Don't go right into corporate world. Don't go right into graduate school. Commit a couple of your li- years of your life to something like the Peace Corps or something like, um, you know, teaching in the inner city. And let me just say, by the way, that is a great thing. That's a cool thing. That's an awesome thing. If, if you're doing it for the Lord if you're doing it for the right reason. Because let me say this, it sounds noble, it can be noble, it can be good, but do you really believe that there's nothing more noble about doing that than a guy graduating from college and going to work for corporate America? Guys, they're both honoring to God. It is just as honoring to do that as it's honoring for an engineer to graduate, to get married, to get a job supporting his family, to give to his church, to support missions, to buy a house, to minister to his neighbors, that's a good thing. And we don't want the pendulum to swing so much to say that, again, there are special classifications for what you do and I do in terms of significance. Guys, let me say this. I love my job. I feel very fulfilled. I feel, if you want to use this term, significant in what I'm called to do. But guys, that it's no more significant. It's no more unique. It's no more of a calling than what God has called you to do. And until we get those categories fixed in our minds, we're going to wrestle. Guys, let me, let me, here's the good news and bad news. God is not asking you to change the world, okay? That is good news, because guess what? You can't. Only God can change the world. God's just asking you to be faithful. God's asking you, maybe some of you, just, I know this, is, this sounds just terrible, to be ordinary, okay? To, to be normal, okay? Um, to, to, to be content with what God has called you to do. See, what God has called us all to do may be different, but is no less significant. So Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do, it's all holy, it's good, do it for the word, working heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Let me close with this, and let me, let me show you from the text. Here's what happens when we walk in faith in this way. Here's what, we ha- here's what happens. You may say, Pastor Paul, okay, that's great. I get it, understand. I still have to go to work in the morning. What do I get out of this? This is the most encouraging and discouraging thing at the same time. Look at the text. Paul says, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, what kind of inheritance is Paul talking about? Folks, for the, for the slave in Colossae, there was no inheritance. There was none. There was nothing to be gained. When the master passed away, none of that was going to the slave. The slave had no connections, oftentimes had no family. Think about how hard it would be to labor your whole life, knowing that what awaits you at the end of your life is merely death. There's no big will. There's no big payout. 
Can you be content if that's what God has called you to? Paul says it is if you know that you will receive the inheritance as your reward. See, guys, we, because we labor ultimately God, for God and not for men, when, when we grab hold of the gospel as the touch point for all of our work and understand that God has died for us to, to reclaim you and God has died for me to reclaim me, which means he's reclaimed for his honor, for his glory, whatever it is that he has called us to do. Whatever we do for him is important. We know that what we do in this life has meaning. And that one day we will stand before him and give an account of our stewardship. And then we will receive at that time our reward. Our eternal inheritance. Well done, good and faithful servant. Sometimes, sometimes, we just have to rely on this, for Oaks, that God's grace is sufficient. That God's grace will have to carry us. That there may not be a light at the end of the tunnel, except the light of the gospel. That what we do now really does matter. And it really does pay dividends for eternity. This is what this table is about. When we come to the table today, we're coming asking God to renew our hearts in what he's called us to do. We're asking him to remind us that fundamentally our identity is not in what we do. Our identity is in who we are and who has died for us, and that is Jesus Christ. So as our leaders come and prepare to serve the elements, I'm going to ask you, all of us, just before the Lord, silently, preparing your hearts to come, asking God to renew your vision for what you do, by renewing your heart and vision for him.